Our scripture reading this evening is 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. The text for the sermon is verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if they obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. I'm going to stop reading there at verse 16. The text for the sermon is verse 7, likewise, that matches the likewise in verse 1, when it looked at the calling of the wife, likewise, now we turn to the husband, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, and now I have to trans change things around in this verse considerably to match the Greek. 
And the way it should read then is dwell with them according to knowledge and then giving honor unto the wife, I'm sorry, dwelling with them according to knowledge as unto the weaker vessel. So that's the knowledge. And then giving honor unto the wife as being heirs together of the grace of life. So let me read that again. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge as with the weaker vessel, giving honor unto the wife as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, last month in connection with baptism, we considered the scripture's instruction to the wives found here in the first six verses of this chapter. Today we examine the calling of the husband in verse 7, introduced with that word likewise, indicating that as the Spirit has given instruction concerning the calling of the wife, now the Spirit turns to the husband and says, now you have a calling as well. This is considered in connection with baptism because husbands and wives make vows before God and the church about what they will do with this child that is baptized. But if their marriage is wrong, it will seriously affect the instruction that they give to their children. Therefore, we consider the, the instruction of the Spirit on marriage. And so I asked the husbands and the young men of the congregation, what kind of husband is the ideal husband? What does God put forth as the model that all of us as young men seeking to be a husband someday, and all of us as husbands need to examine and to seek to be what God requires? The answer, of course, we all know. The model is Jesus Christ himself. Now that, of course, makes things very difficult from a certain point of view because while the wife is to look at the church and the church's relationship to Christ and say, now I have to learn from that and learned that the chief characteristic of the wife is that she submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ but the church is imperfect. Now we look at the example that God sets before us, the model for husbands, and we have someone who is sinless. We have someone who is absolutely the perfect husband. We have one who is not only that, but very God. And so the question is, in what respect must a husband look at Christ and say, there is my model. Well, as I did with the women, let me read some verses from Scripture that show us what is the chief calling of the husband with regard to his wife. Ephesians 5, verse 28, Husbands, love your wife as Christ also loved 
the church and gave himself for it. The same chapter, Ephesians 5, 28. So ought men to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Ephesians 5, 33. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. In Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. It's pretty obvious. Love. Love your wife. That is the constant refrain of the scriptures to the husbands. Love your wives. Clearly, this is the high calling. This love of a husband for his wife is like that of Jesus, self-sacrificing. It is a love that seeks to do good to the wife, that does good to the wife, always seeking what is best for her. Last time I paraphrased 1 Corinthians 13 and applied it to the wife, but it applies very directly to the husband, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 13 is about love. And so for the husband, though he be an extraordinary provider, so that the wife never lacks, always has food, clothing, tremendously provided shelter, yet if he does not love his wife, all that is nothing. A husband may be a spiritual powerhouse. He has tremendous theological knowledge able to interpret the scriptures and apply them. But if he doesn't love his wife, all that is nothing. A husband may be strong and courageous and willing to protect his wife against anyone that might attack. But if he does not love his wife, all that is nothing. He may display attributes to people around him that other women would say to their sons, that's the kind of husband you ought to be. And to, the, to their daughters, that's the kind of husband you ought to seek. But if he does not love his wife, all that is nothing. The text we consider does not use the word Love, And yet everything that is required of the husband here arises out of love. Because love is not merely saying to the wife before bed, I love you, and in the morning, I love you, though that's a good practice. But love is something that has to be lived, demonstrated. And this text exactly will show what does it mean for a husband to love his wife? How will this be seen? How will a husband live with his wife? And the text says, number one, dwell with her. Dwell with her as a man of understanding, understanding that she is the weaker vessel. That's the unfortunate translation that gets messed up there but that's the important thing understanding with knowledge that she is 
the weaker vessel. Second, he will honor her. He will deliberately honor. He will go out of the way to honor his wife. And so important are these things, and so easy are they to neglect, that God grabs the attention of every husband here with a, with a dreadful warning. Do this, he says, dwell with them according to knowledge, Honor the wife in order that your prayers be not hindered. A man's relationship to God in his life of prayer will be adversely affected, seriously affected, if he does not dwell with his wife according to knowledge and honor her. That gets your attention. Tonight, let's consider this verse under the theme, God-approved dwelling with one's wife. Well, notice in the first place, dwelling with knowledge. Secondly, dwelling by honoring. And thirdly, dwelling in the fear of God. Husbands, dwell with your wives. What does that mean? It means to live together. The verb dwell here in the text has embedded in it the Greek word for a house, a dwelling place. That's what he's saying. Live with your wife. Dwell with her. And this, of course, is bound up in the very institution of marriage because when God created man, he made man first, to indicate his calling, you are the king of the creation, you're responsible for this. But then he showed Adam that Adam needed someone to help him by having the animals go two by two so that Adam realized, I'm alone, I need someone. And then God formed from his rib Eve and brought her to Adam to indicate this is the one you need to be a help to you. And Adam responded... Genesis chapter 2. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then the commentary of Scripture is, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. One flesh indicates... They are inseparable. From that moment on, the husband and the wife are inseparable. Now that, not that they never are physically separate from each other, but from that moment on, they are one flesh. So they have to dwell together. That should be pretty obvious. Husband and wife do not merely occupy the same house and sit at the same table and sleep in the same bed. But the husband lives with his wife in such a way that he lives his life through his wife. He lives his life through her. He does not live separate from her. He is always united to him. No matter where she is, she, he is united to his wife. 
He is never acting merely on his own behalf. It's always activity, thoughts, words that are connected with his wife. He is inseparable from her. The present tense of the verb dwell indicates that continuous action. It's the same word that's used when the, the Bible says the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And now the Bible says to the husband, dwell with your wife. Constant, ceaseless activity. The calling of the wife clearly, the husband rather clearly is to, is to live close to her in the sense also that he lives in harmony with her, not that they're at each other's throats all the time. That's not dwelling with one's wife. It is seeking and enjoying fellowship with her. That's that's all implied in the command, dwell with your wife. The husband does not have a God-given right to separate from his wife and do his own thing, to do his guy thing, so to speak. Sometimes young men have an active life of friends and they're out night after night with friends. They have dates and they have friends and, and then when they get married, well, that continues. I get to go out with the guys regularly, week after week. That's not a God-ordained right. That's not something that God says to the husband, you have that you have that right. That's due you. You may have that time with the guys week after week. I'm not saying, of course, that that's wrong. But we have to be careful. If there's a tradition of leaving the wife and going off with guys, a tradition. Every year we have this golf outing. Every year we go snowmobiling. Every year we go hunting. Every year we have this softball tournament. Again, it's not that the activity is wrong. Not even that one is separated from one's wife. But if that is so important that it may not be broken, regardless of how much the wife may need you that week, then it's wrong. Then it's wrong. Dwell with her. Be there for her. That's what this is saying. The home with the wife is the place where the husband must desire to be. When God says, love your wife, it isn't as if God says, love her no matter what, and, and says, do this, but it should come out of the heart. So also dwelling with her should come out of a, a desire he wants to be there in the home with her. And he has to be there because of the calling God has given him to be the one who is the head of the home. How can he possibly carry out his function, his role as the head of the home if he's not home? Dwell with your wife. But dwell with her according to knowledge. Now, whenever the Bible speaks of knowledge for a child of God, obviously the first knowledge is the knowledge of the Bible. It's the knowledge of God 
in and through Jesus Christ. And the head of the home must be a man of knowledge. He must know the Bible. One of the functions of being uh, the head of the home is to lead his wife. And part of the leading is giving good instruction. But anyone who is going to instruct must know more than the student that is going to be instructed. Therefore, the husband must be continually growing in knowledge so that he is able to lead his wife, to instruct her in the Scriptures. He must be a man of knowledge. But there's a particular kind of knowledge that he must have, the text says, that concerns his wife and concerns God's will in marriage of the relationship between a husband and a wife. And that is that God created the husband and a wife in a very unique way. That is to say, on the one hand, they're very similar. They're very similar. They are one flesh. Eve came out of Adam. He could say, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. The husband and the wife dwelling together are not two different creatures, like a dog and a cat living in the same place. They're the same flesh. They have the same flesh, flesh and blood. They have human minds and wills and emotions and human bodies so that they can live together. But God also made them unique, different, in order that they could fit together better because of their uniqueness. The husband was created to be the head of the the home and the marriage, and therefore to be the one who would lead. God created him for that. God created the wife to be the one who would be the needed helper for the husband, and therefore be the one who would submit and support. And God made each one for that position. God did not make the wife, therefore, simply a slightly smaller version of the husband. But otherwise, there's no difference. The knowledge that he must have specifically is that God has created her a weaker vessel. A weaker vessel. What does that mean? Weaker does not mean inferior. It does not mean that the wife is less important. It does not mean that she is less valuable. Absolutely not. If I may make the point, if I had here a beautiful glass vase worth hundreds of dollars, and over here I have a tin can... And the tin can is stronger than the glass vase. We're not talking importance here. We're talking weakness or strength. Not importance, not value. 
That does not mean that the wife is somehow less intelligent. It doesn't mean anything of the kind. It only means that God has created her to be weaker. God created, by the way, weakness is not in any way to be something shameful. Paul said, using the same word, to the weak, I became as weak. I became weak in order that I might gain the weak. So there's nothing shameful about this whatsoever. But God created the woman to be the weaker vessel. Ordinarily, there's a physical difference in the strength between a husband and a wife. There is ordinarily a difference in emotional strength between the husband and the wife. The makeup of the woman is that of a weaker vessel. This is the way God made her. Why? Why did God, the potter, take of the clay and make of the woman a weaker vessel than the husband? Well, again, not for the ego of the man so that he could strut around and say, I'm stronger. There's no point to that. Nor is it that he can dominate her and tyrannize her and abuse her. Absolutely forbidden by God and contrary to all the commands, love your wife. Maybe it would help if we would ask the question, why does God make children weaker than their parents? And the answer, first of all, would be that this is fitting for their place within the home so that they can be subject to their parents as they are growing, as they are being reared in the fear of the Lord. But it's also this, that parents then can show love for their children by caring for their children. The same thing is true of the wife. This, this is helpful for her to fit in her role as a wife, but it also is saying to the husband, She's the weaker vessel. Care for her. Take care of her. God made her that way so that you could do that. Some implications of that are, first of all, that the husband must be strong. He's called to be strong. He must be a rock of strength within the home and to his wife. He must be a solid support for her. He must be a strong defense, a strong aid and protector. He must protect her from physical dangers. He must protect her from spiritual dangers. That's his calling, to protect. He's called to take care of her spiritually, emotionally, physically, as the weaker vessel. 
at the end of a man's life when all of his accomplishments are laid out in front of him, and they may be impressive, but the most important thing is this. Did you take care of your wife? Did you dwell with her according to knowledge? And here we see, once again, what God said. Husbands, Christ. And look at Christ. Christ took care of his church. And he could do that because he was strong. Absolutely strong. And yet, when Christ first came into the world, he did not come rushing into the world and say to everybody, look how strong I am. But he became weak in order to serve his church. He took on the form of a servant. He became an ordinary human being. He became weak in order to save, to serve his church. In fact, the Bible says he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He came to minister. And Jesus' example puts everything into perspective as far as a husband and how a husband should look at his wife. If you young men think that a wife is someone that is there for your glory and your comfort in life, if you imagine that the ideal husband is this beautiful woman who meets you at the door when you come home from work and has slippers in hand in one hand and your favorite beverage in the other and sits you down comfortably and serves all of your needs, if that's what you imagine a wife is, someone that will make you look good as you walk down the sidewalk, you don't have the first understanding of what it is to be a husband. Not the first. Jesus made himself a servant in order to save his church. He was strong. He was strong for them. He stood up to the devil himself. He would endure the wrath of God in the place of his church. He was mighty indeed, as we sang tonight before the service. Mighty indeed. But he did that for the sake of his church. He was strong, and he saved them. Interesting that Romans chapter 5 uses the same word weak, without strength, that is used in the text here when it says, we were without strength. We were helpless. But Jesus saved us. He was powerful to save. So must a husband be strong. This is how he must live with his wife. 
A man of understanding, understanding that she is the weaker vessel. There are other implications. She cannot bear all the weight that a husband can bear. Now, at this point, anybody who's been married any length of time will say, but wait a minute. There have definitely been times in my marriage where I was ready to collapse. I was, I was ready to throw in the towel, and my wife said, no, we have to be strong. We have to continue. Absolutely. That's the blessing of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 4 says two are better than one because they have a good reward for each other. If they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. And that's what a wife does. But it's not her calling ordinarily to be the leader in this. It's not her calling to be the strong one in the relationship. That's not her calling. It's the calling of the man to be the one who is strong for his wife. But it is foolish, therefore, for a man to place heavy burdens on his wife. He's not recognizing the reality. God has created her different. She is a weaker vessel. There are times in a marriage when this becomes very plain from a very practical point of view. When a husband and wife are working on a big project, maybe it's fixing up the house, maybe it's a huge landscape project, and the man is tired, but he's determined to press to the end, get this done, and he forgets about the fact that his wife is the weaker vessel, and she's ready to collapse. A husband must be willing to bear the burdens of marriage, the emotional burdens, the financial burdens, the church ecclesiastical burdens. There are many reasons why an elder may not go home and tell his wife about consistory meeting business, but here's another one. She's not made for that. God did not make her to bear that kind of weight. Certainly husbands and wives carry burdens together. But the man must do so with understanding. This is how a man shows love for his wife. Do not burden your wife in such a way that she is overwhelmed. It takes wisdom, takes understanding. We indulge our children, I mean by that, that we do not hold them to the same standards. We don't place the same weight of responsibility on a child that an adult can bear because they're weaker. Now carry that over to the wife. You do not simply put the same exact burden that a man should be able to bear on his wife and say, bear it. That's foolish. We don't do that. Dwell with her as a man of understanding, knowing that she is the weaker vessel. But now, lest a man should then begin to despise his wife because she is weaker vessel. The text immediately adds, honor her. 
honor her. Honor her as a, literally, a joint heir of the grace of life. A joint heir of the grace of life. That, that's a beautiful concept. Grace, as we saw this morning, is an attribute of God. It's an attribute which has as its essential nature beauty. God is a beautiful God. He's gracious. And then it's a beautiful attitude. But it's also the power that makes beautiful. That transforms from death and ugliness into beauty and holiness. God's grace. That it speaks of the grace of life indicates that it's a particular work of God that gives life. Gives life. Now think about what it is to be an heir of something. It means that someone has bequeathed you something. To be an heir of the grace of life is to be an heir of eternal life and of glory. That's what we're talking about here. An heir of the grace of life is someone who has an inheritance in heaven. Life and glory. That means that God has eternally chosen that person in love in Jesus Christ. Chosen that person unto eternal life by a free and gracious election, in no way connected with a person as if the person earned it, but simply God's gracious choice. God loves that individual. God has determined to bring her into His own fellowship in glory. Being an heir of eternal life includes redemption. It means that Jesus came into the world to save that individual. He took the guilt of that individual upon himself. Every single sin ever committed, that guilt has been put on Jesus and he paid the punishment for it. To be an heir of eternal life means sanctification, that the Spirit has come and given life and sanctifies and makes one to be holy. All of salvation is included in being an heir of the grace of life. Blessings that come now in this world and blessings that we can expect, look forward to in eternity. The husband must view his wife as a joint heir of eternal life. That immediately makes them Equals. Equals. If in the marriage relationship, as it is, God has just said the husband will be the head, the wife must submit in that relationship, yet when they stand before their Savior Jesus Christ, they are equal. They are both sinners, saved by grace. They are both sinners, redeemed in the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no difference between the two. One is not higher than the other. They are both heirs of the grace of life. 
They're both prophets, priests, and kings. They both can pray directly to God. They both can read the Scriptures and understand it. They can discuss theology together because they're both heirs of eternal life. They have the blessings of salvation. Honor her as a joint heir, as a fellow Christian, recognizing that she is saved in the blood of Jesus Christ, precious in the sight of God, equally chosen, redeemed, filled with the Holy Spirit, as much as the husband. She has the blessings of salvation. She has forgiveness of sins. She has righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. She has all the fruits of the Spirit. And she is an heir of the life to come. Husband and wife live together with the knowledge that the closest companion in this life will go to heaven together. The closest companion in this life will go to heaven together. Not as husband and wife, but bound together in the love of Jesus Christ. What, what an amazing thing. It should not be difficult for a husband in this way to honor his wife. And yet, the text emphasizes the need to do it consciously, deliberately. The verb for honor means literally to assign honor, to give a specific portion of honor to the wife. It is a deliberate, conscious activity of lifting up the wife and honoring her. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Is that hard for you? Is that hard to honor your wife? Well, if it's still a difficult thing for you, then I want you to consider for a moment Jesus Christ. Christ honors his bride with his own amazing glory and power. If there ever was a husband who could legitimately look down upon his wife, all her sins and weaknesses, it would be Jesus who could look down upon his bride and despise her for all her unfaithfulness and sin. Instead, his life and his goal was to lift her up to glory. He was willing to descend into the depths of hell in order to lift up his church to heaven. And as we heard this morning, to give us his glory, we are raised, we are rather quickened, 
with Christ. We are raised with Christ. We will sit together with Christ in heaven. He honors his wife with his own glory. So must a husband honor his wife. Not to recognize that she is a joint heir of eternal life is to deny the very gifts that God has worked in her and to deny God himself. A husband may look at his wife and see all sorts of good things that he can honor. She's a great cook. She's sympathetic. She's a great support. But don't forget to honor her as a joint heir of eternal life. Tremendous. To be able to worship together. God calls the husband to dwell with his wife in knowledge as the weaker vessel, honoring her as a joint heir, and then thirdly, to dwell with her in the fear of God. And this is where the text contains a strong warning to every husband. Because you have here that and that's short for the phrase, in order that, in order that. So do this, dwell with her this way, in order that something not happen, in order that your prayers be not hindered. Prayer is fellowship and worship of God. Prayer is of the utmost importance for every child of God. This is, our, this is our covenant life. This is how we communicate with God. A man brings his prayers to God and he, he brings his praises and he confesses his sins and he makes his petitions before his God. Prayer is vital. To have these prayers hindered is a most serious thing. Paul writes, uses that word hindered when he says, he writes to the Romans and says, we, we wanted to come, but we were hindered. He was not able to come. He wrote to the Thessalonians and said, we had an intention of coming, but Satan hindered us. They were not able to come. That tells you what happens to the prayers. They don't make it. They don't get there. God doesn't listen to them. He doesn't hear the requests. He won't answer them. That's a very serious business. Especially prayers that have to do with marriage and a family. A husband with any wisdom at all is going to be praying to God for his blessing upon his marriage and family because... There isn't a marriage out there that's going to be a great and glorious, joyful marriage unless God blesses it. There isn't a home out there that will be a place of love and fellowship and joy unless God blesses that home. And so a man prays to God for a blessing upon himself, upon his wife, upon his family. That's what he does. And especially when the relationship between husband and wife is not so good. 
when it's drained, then he prays for God to bless it. But God will not hear the prayer. He will not hear it. The husband is the one that is responsible for the life of the home and of the marriage. The word of God to the husband at that point is, yes, you have all kinds of problems in your marriage, but if you will not live as you are supposed to live, don't come running to me and ask me to fix it. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Honor the wife as a joint heir. Don't come running to me if you refuse to live the way I told you to dwell with your wife. This is a terrible warning because, again, no marriage will ever be a good thing except God bless the marriage. But on the other hand, what a beautiful thing, what a blessing it is when the prayers of that man arise up to God and God hears that prayer. God does not hear the prayer because they are living in obedience. That's not ever why God hears prayers. God hears prayers because of Jesus Christ. God hears prayers because Christ earned the right for us to access Him. Because Christ earned any blessing that God will ever give. Because Christ takes the prayer and perfects it and brings it before God with a plea that God will hear it. We never earn the right to be heard by God, not by obedience. We can lose God's ear by our disobedience, but we don't gain it by our obedience. That's something to think about. God knows precisely what your marriage is like. When there are children in the home, we try to give at least some presentation that our marriage is pretty good. We try to give that impression to people around us that our marriage is pretty good. But God knows exactly what our marriages are like. And if the husband refuses to do what God tells him to do, God cuts off the avenue of prayer. But in the way of living, as God requires, the prayers of the husband are not hindered. The same is true of the wife, that her prayers will not be hindered either. In that marriage, there is unity. Husband and wife joined together in prayer and getting up from their knees united to serve God. Husbands and wives that are heirs together of the grace of life, serving God together, walking down life's pathway together in service to God. And a husband so assisted by that wife to carry out his duties. You see why it's so important, don't you? Because, first of all, here's a picture of Christ and his church. That must not be defiled. We must strive for that as husbands to be as Christ 
to his church, that there be blessed unity in marriage, that there is love and fellowship. We're pointing to the reality of that marriage that is perfect, that is eternal, where the fellowship and love is without sin. Having a marriage like that in our homes is not only a picture, but it's a foretaste. It's important not only because of the picture that it is and the foretaste, but because of the covenant children. Why does God demand of husbands that they be faithful to their wives? Malachi chapter 2. Because he seeks a godly seed. And in a home where the marriage is bad, the instruction of the children suffers. The place is unstable, it's insecure. But when the marriage is solid by the grace of God, then the children can be nurtured. They're not afraid. This is a place where love is displayed from husband to wife, from the wife back to the husband. And that's the point of baptism. Husbands, dwell with your wives. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee for the instruction that we receive as husbands and wives. Apply it to our hearts. We have such a small beginning of this new obedience that we are ashamed. But by thy spirit tonight, we are reminded of what we must be, and we pray that the spirit will give us strength exactly to do that, to live out of this. For the glory of thy name, for the children of the covenant, Lord, bless us in our marriages. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalter number 34. Psalter number 34. I love the Lord. His strength is mine. He is my God. I trust His grace. We'll sing the stanzas one, two, and then go over to the next page. Same sound, same tune and sing stanza six. So number 34, the first two stanzas, and then go to number 35 and sing stanza six.
The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. Thank you.